I've been listening recently to Patty Griffin, who has a number of great songs, including a wonderful song I've listened to several times just this past week called Burgundy Shoes, and which is uh, her attempt to capture musically this recollection she has of taking a bus ride to Bangor, Maine with her mother when she was a little girl. It's a hauntingly beautiful song that it sounds like a memory. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but uh, it really does sound like a memory. At any rate, every time I hear that song, I can't help but think about my mother, whose birthday my family will actually be celebrating later on today, and who has, just in this past year, been told by a doctor that, as she puts it, she's losing her memories. And as I've reflected on that um, awful reality, it has brought home to me once again, and in perhaps a more personal way, the painful truth that these bodies, this flesh, this stuff that houses us is at best a temporary dwelling place and one that is subject to the corruption and decay and pain that has been an inescapable feature of our fallen world ever since the events of Genesis 3. And that reality is one that lies at the heart of the verses that are before us this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 18. Verses in which Paul further describes and defends some of the perspectives that have shaped him as a person and which drove him to do what he did and say what he said in his role as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in general and to the Corinthian believers in particular. And so since we have a lot of ground to cover we're going to let that suffice as an introduction this morning and go straight to the passage. But just before we do that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you in advance for the gift that this revelation is to us as your people. Even before we have considered it together, we know that it is going to be good for us because you are a father who loves his children and who only gives them what they need and what is best and what will work to accomplish your overall good purposes. Purposes that amazingly include us. Purposes that are wise and holy and merciful and beyond anything we could possibly think or imagine. So again, we thank you and ask now that your Holy Spirit would once again guide us into your truth, centered upon the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Second Corinthians 4, 6-12 to 12. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. In verse 7, Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay. And in context, the treasure that uh, would have to be the thing that he's just mentioned in verse 6, namely, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the treasure that Paul's talking about here is the revelation of God's glory in the person and work of Jesus, in other words, the gospel. And that treasure, says Paul, is contained in jars of clay, which is a reference to our bodies and which is a very revealing thing for him to say. You know, back in the day, jars of clay or clay pots were found everywhere and were available at very little cost. They'd be the sort of thing you might expect to find inside a massive bargain bin at Walmart or Dollar General where you could get, you know, ten for two bucks or something like that. And these clay pots were used for all sorts of things, including the storage of valuable items like jewelry, which were sometimes placed in a deliberately obscure container like a jar of clay that hopefully would not attract too much attention to itself. And in that scenario, there is obviously a huge contrast between the valuable, perhaps even priceless jewelry and the inexpensive and essentially disposable jar in which it was stored. And that is the contrast that Paul has in view here when he uses this imagery to describe the similarity between that and the fact that people in their frailty and brokenness are the containers of the treasure that is the gospel, both in the sense that we are the possessors of the good news about Jesus that God has entrusted to us in order that we might then pass it on to others, and beyond that, in the sense that we are also indwelt by the very Spirit of God, who is the effector and applier of the gospel in the hearts and lives of men and women. Now, Paul uses several expressions here to describe the frailty, the, the clay-pottedness, the disposability of his and our humanity. He says in verse 8 that he and his colleagues are afflicted in every way, and perplexed, and persecuted, and struck down. And then he summarizes all of these in verse 10, saying that they are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. And again in verse 11 by saying that they are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Paul's language here not only summarizes what he's just said, but also anticipates things he has yet to say later on in this same letter, in chapters 6 and 11, in which he will elaborate on what all this being given over to death for Jesus' sake has looked like in his own life. However, beyond giving these generalized descriptions of what being a jar of clay has looked like for he and his colleagues, Paul also talks about the divine purpose behind these things. That is, 
why God has chosen to entrust such a priceless treasure to such broken, decaying vessels, and further, why He allows these same vessels to experience the hardship and suffering that they do. At least two reasons can be seen here. Firstly, God is protecting us from ourselves. One commentator puts it like this, Had this priceless treasure been contained in a strong and permanent body, it would have proved a fatal combination for proud and sinful man. And that is the significance, I believe, of the phrase, and not to us, that appears at the end of verse 7. Secondly, and more importantly, God is showing that the surpassing power belongs to Him. In other words, when people see the things that happen and keep happening, and when they look at the human agents of those things, they will be forced to conclude that there is more there than meets the eye. They will be forced to look beyond the human instrument to some greater power or hand that is and must be wielding that instrument. To use a Steve Brown image, if you see a dog playing checkers, you don't criticize his game. You just marvel that he's playing at all. And I might add, you're forced to look beyond the dog and wonder, what in the world is going on here? Because dogs can do a lot of things, but playing checkers isn't one of them. And even further, in addition to the message of God's power that this sort of arrangement is intended to send to onlookers, there is the encouraging and humbling effect that this manner of God's working can have upon us as we are being used by Him to accomplish the sorts of things that only He can accomplish. As one writer puts it, it is precisely the Christian's utter frailty which lays him open to the experience of the all-sufficiency of God's grace, so that he is able even to rejoice because of his weakness, something that astonishes and baffles the world, which thinks only in terms of human ability. Now all this talk about God's surpassing power being displayed in and through human weakness leads to the obvious question, what precisely does Paul mean by that? Because God's power can be displayed in countless ways. But is there a specific expression of God's power that Paul has in view just here? And I think there is. In short, it's God's power to sustain and to give hope and courage even in the midst of the most desperate of circumstances and in such a way that is truly baffling to a watching world. We see this in verse 8 in the important qualifications that Paul makes even as he is describing very real, very painful realities that have characterized his own life in recent years. Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed and baffled and confused, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken or abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. 
But Paul talks about the life of Jesus being manifest in our bodies, in our mortal flesh. This, I believe, is what he's talking about. To be sure, the life of Jesus can be revealed in all kinds of positive ways, in terms of joy that we might have, or energy, or drive, or purpose, or a sense of direction and mission, or faithfulness, etc. But that is not the only way the life of Jesus can be demonstrated in our bodies. Here, Paul talks about another way that it gets illustrated. What is that way? It is when we are not crushed. When we are not destroyed. When we are not despairing. The blow that would take out a hundred people inexplicably does not do so for us. And that says something. That is the life of Jesus flowing in his people. The fact that God's people get back up and keep getting back up. The fact that we often have every reason to despair, humanly speaking, and yet we don't. Those are the kinds of things Paul has in mind. And those are some of the clearest evidences that, that the life of Jesus is manifest in our body. We heard the story a few months back in our Sunday school class about an awful tragedy that befell the family of one of our church members where a young child was lost in the midst of a terrible boating accident in South America. And we heard how even in the midst of the chaos and confusion of that moment, this family found themselves remembering the goodness of God even as their hearts were breaking. But they found themselves in that very moment remembering God's mercy, even singing of God's mercy right there in the middle of that terrible river that had just taken away their child, right in the middle of all that had happened. And they didn't do it because they had to. They didn't do it because they thought they were supposed to. They did it because they wanted to. They actually wanted to. And I tell you this, all the forces of hell could not have prevented that song from being sung in that moment. The world looks at this, that's crazy, that's nuts. No, it isn't. It's not crazy. It's God. It is the very life of Jesus surging through His people. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Back in verse 1 of this chapter, Paul wrote, we do not lose heart. And we saw through our study last week that one of the reasons that Paul did not lose heart 
was because of the mercy of God that had so graciously been extended to him in the past and which encouraged him to faithfully serve the Lord Jesus in the present. In verses 7 to 12 thus far this morning, we've seen a bit more of Paul's perspective as an apostle, and in so doing we've seen further reasons why Paul has not and does not lose heart. Paul does not lose heart because he understands that it's in the midst of human weakness that God's power is most clearly displayed. He does not lose heart because his being given over to death is what demonstrates the very life of Christ within him, even as he responds with hope and perseverance to these hardships into which the Father has most surely led him. Paul does not lose heart because his diminishment has resulted in life for the Corinthians, whom he deeply loves, in spite of their sorry selves. Well, in the verses just read to you, verses 13 to 15, Paul shows that he has even more to say on this subject and helps us to understand even better why he has not lost heart, why he continues to persevere as an apostle. And he does so, firstly, by basically quoting from an Old Testament passage, Psalm 116, to which he feels especially drawn in his current circumstances. The quotation is embedded right there in verse 13, when Paul says, I believed, and so I spoke. One commentator writes helpfully about the significance of this. He says, It is particularly fitting that at this point Paul should quote from Psalm 116, precisely because it is a hymn of thanksgiving for deliverance from death. The cords of death compassed me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of Jehovah. I was brought low, and he saved me. Thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, my feet from falling. I believed, and therefore I spoke. Praise ye Jehovah. Paul, as Chrysostom says, has reminded us of a psalm which abounds in heavenly wisdom, and which is especially fitted to encourage in dangers. For that just man uttered this saying when he was in great dangers, from which there was no possibility of recovery except by the aid of God. So by alluding to this particular psalm, Paul is saying that he has the same sort of faith as that of the writer of Psalm 116. He's saying that the things that moved the psalmist to express his confidence in the Lord, even in the midst of trouble, are what motivate Paul now to do the same, and in similar circumstances. Paul is saying that he can identify with the writer of Psalm 116, indeed, that he's actually living Psalm 116. And amidst this open expression of his confidence in the Lord, tucked inside there, we see further reasons for Paul's confidence, further reasons why he and his colleagues do not lose heart. And specifically, there are two things I would draw your attention to in this regard. Firstly, Paul confidently affirms in verse 14 that because Jesus was raised, the resurrection of all those who belong to Jesus is assured which includes Paul and the Corinthians. And so being confident of that, being confident that this life is just a prelude to the life to come, completely changes how you approach everything that happens here and now. It affects how you think about your life and what it is for. 
It affects how you think about this world and what it offers. It affects how tightly you hold on to some things and how easily you let go of others. It affects your priorities. It affects how you spend your time. It affects what you think is valuable and important as opposed to what is trivial and unimportant. It affects how you respond to good things and equally how you respond to terrible things. Confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for those who are His can and should affect everything about us. Secondly, Paul reaffirms in verse 15 that everything that he has endured in the service of Christ, important qualification there, but everything he has endured in the service of Christ is for their sake, that is, for the Corinthians' sake, but even more has resulted, among other things, in increased thanksgiving and glory being given to God. In short, it's all for a good cause. It's all for a purpose, the glory of God that more than justifies what Paul has endured, and more than that, gives worth and meaning to every last aspect of it. Now, admittedly, whenever you and I talk about the glory of God, there's a sense in which we have no earthly idea of what we're talking about. Because we've never experienced it in any way approaching the manner in which we will experience it one day. But we do have the record in the scriptures of how even a fleeting glimpse of the most subdued presentations of God's glory typically rendered people speechless or produced an awareness of sin and self that was horrifying or caused people to simply fall to the ground. We see those kinds of examples in scripture which are enough to convince us that when we do finally stand in the presence of the Lord, and behold His glory, the thought of pointing out to God all that we endured for His sake, I believe will be the furthest thing from our minds. If anything, we will most likely wonder why so little was asked of us for a God as wonderful as this. And so Paul's hopefulness and confidence is boosted by both the certainty of the resurrection and by the knowledge that ultimately all that has happened will serve to increase thanksgiving to a God whose glory he has as yet only barely encountered, but of whose breathtaking majesty he is quite certain. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul finishes where he started in this chapter with a reaffirmation that he and his colleagues do not and have not lost heart. And then in addition to everything we've already seen, we get yet another statement, an expansion of this perspective that Paul has, and which undergirds his continued confidence in the Lord. Accompanying his reaffirmation here are three pithy phrases that because of their depth and beauty have found their way into any number of books and articles 
and theological journals, and then more popularly onto lots of posters and t-shirts in Christian bookstores around the country, but which we would do even better to have emblazoned on our hearts, as these are perspectives that will carry you and me, as they did Paul, right through to the end. Because these things go right to the heart of the matter. Firstly, Paul says, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. With these words, Paul is acknowledging that those of us who are getting older have uh, what we've recognized all too well, and that is that you know, this stuff, this body is not going to last forever. These joints are wearing out. The wrinkles are more noticeable. The hair is getting a little thinner. The neurons are not firing quite as rapidly these days. 9 p.m. is the new midnight. The jump shot's not what it used to be. A lot less jump and a little more shot. The outer self is obviously wasting away. And that's what Paul realized too. And his various trials and physical sufferings had brought that point home all too clearly. However, there is another process going on. One that is not physical in nature, but spiritual. And Paul refers to this as the renewal of the inner self. And is, by these words, referring to the renewing and restoring work of the Holy Spirit that takes place within every genuine believer. One writer talks about it this way. As the decaying human frame approaches disintegration, the finishing touches are being applied to the new creation. At death, the scaffolding and hessian of our outer frame will be removed, and God will unveil to us the building from God, the house not built by human hands, eternal in heaven. I make it a practice to travel up and down Starring Lane, where the church property is located, several times a week, just to monitor the ongoing progress of the road expansion that is taking place. And things are moving ahead pretty rapidly as numerous trees have been cut down and even whole houses have been removed. One of these houses that wasn't being removed, but which was losing some of the front part of its property, had a tall brick wall that at one time shielded the house from the road. And just yesterday as I passed, I noticed that they had torn uh, more than half of that brick wall down, making quite a mess and leaving the whole thing in um, a state of disarray. But what I also noticed is that a few feet behind the wall that was being torn down, there was another wall, a new one, that was nearing completion and which had obviously been worked on while the old one was being removed. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about, which says something to you and me. Because as discouraging as it might be to know that our outer selves are wasting away, or to watch this process take place in those we love, it is encouraging to know that if we are in the Lord, then there is another process going on all the time. At this very moment, this process is going on. At this very moment, the complete renovation 
and restoration of the image of God that has been so distorted by sin and the fall. That is happening right now. Which is why this stuff, this flesh has to go. Because it's only then that the glory of the other project will be fully revealed. The second poster phrase that Paul uses here is, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul describes all that is happening to him, all that has happened to him up to this point is that which is light and momentary. And the reason Paul says this is not because he's in denial or because he's afraid to admit to the reality of what's taking place in his life. Paul's a realist. Now, the things he's going through are real and painful and even heartbreaking. And Paul would have never denied any of that. However, as real as they were, Paul knew enough to know that these things were as nothing in comparison to the weight of glory that awaited him, and indeed all those who were to be found in Christ. And as one commentator described it, the picture you need to have in mind here is of a scale. And on one side of this scale is the burden of Paul's sufferings and affliction, and all the many hardships he had endured for Christ's sake. And you can picture this scale with one side sort of all the way down and the other one straight up in the air. So heavy are those burdens. But what Paul is saying is that no matter how real and heavy those things are on the one side of the scale, the weight of glory that was in front of him because of his being in Christ, if you were to somehow find a way to place the weight of that on the other side of the scale, you would see the whole thing tip in the other direction. In fact, the imbalance would be so great, the difference is so drastic, that the afflictions of Paul would seem as nothing by comparison. And as a completely inadequate comparison to that, imagine placing a, an actual penny on a side of, one side of an actual scale and say, I don't know, a cruise ship on the other side. And imagine what that would do to the scale and the penny and when you think about it that way, you can begin to understand the significance of what Paul is saying here. Again, the hardship that Paul's experiencing is real, but it's nothing in comparison to the experience that is still in front of him. The third and final phrase Paul uses is, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, it's important to remember that this last phrase is part of a larger sentence which starts out by talking about this light and momentary affliction, which we've just seen, and which is producing an eternal weight of glory. It's important to remember that because, you see, it is the various afflictions that Paul encountered that caused him to look beyond this life and this world and even this time to something greater, something better. As one commentator described it, it was Paul's troubles that helped him to understand and remember that there was no future for him in this tawdry, fading existence. So because of his troubles, Paul looked beyond that which he could see now, this age, this life, this world, with all of its brokenness and sin and struggle. Paul looked beyond all that toward the things that were as yet unseen. 
And by that Paul means not things that are here but which are invisible, but rather things that are not here at all, things that have not yet happened but will happen, the age to come, the world to come. With Jesus as Lord and with His people, their inner self renewed and their outer self newly clothed in resurrection bodies that do not decay, that do not wear out, and that are not frail. So do not lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed day by day. Your light momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So do not look at the things that are seen now, but look toward the things that are unseen, but which will be fully revealed when the Lord Jesus actually returns. For the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray.